I'm Euro. I'm Chris. And this is Fork Bomb. February 22nd, 2021. Episode 32, The Power PC and the Macintosh. How you doing, Chris? Doing pretty well, Euro. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm tired from uh, from work. I had a long day, but uh, but I'm better now. We're doing this episode, and uh, and and I always enjoy I always enjoy doing these podcasts with you. Likewise, and uh, this one is particularly special because um, we are communicating with each other through a uh, network of chewing gum, uh, string, and duct tape. Almost. And uh, and I have to mute myself every time, otherwise I'll I'll hear you chewing. <laughs> so yeah, um, <clears throat> by that we mean we are talking to each other over the internet on PowerPC Macintoshes, and um, we're doing that even though there are no services left that allow us to <laughs> um, audio chat with each other. So we're actually doing it through iChat's Bonjour on Mac OS X Tiger from 2000 and what, 6, 2007? Yep. Yep. And on, uh, we're Tiger 10.4.11. And, uh, and yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, we wanted to use our PowerPC laptops so we could stay true to our, to the nature of our episode. We just felt that it was right to do it all on PowerPC. And we've uh, worked really, really hard to make this possible just so that we could say we can and did. Uh, so uh, currently, um, you sound awful to me. I sound awful to you. We're fighting hearing echoes of ourself uh, over this VPN connection that iChat is going through. Uh, even though we didn't have it at all in any of our prior tests, it waits for the podcast episode to start having problems. But we're here, and we want to talk all about the history of the PowerPC processor and our experience in working on PowerPC machines from the era of its heyday. Yeah, we, we just had to make it happen. I mean, and you know the really cool part about it is, is that you're right. You know, these services, they don't exist anymore. It's not like you can just jump on iChat uh, on PowerPC and, 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 and have it work. It, it doesn't. So, just having, having this work is, is amazing. And, uh, and it, it's still, you know, I, I want to say that these, that these machines, we can, we can do or, well, let me take that back. I can almost do everything that I need to do on a PowerPC. And that's, that's just a testament of its legacy. But anyway, uh, let's get down to the history first, and then we'll... Well, uh... um, Go ahead. I, I wanted to ask before we get into it, what, what are you recording on? On Audacity. On my PowerPC I mean, G4. I mean, what, what kind of Mac? Oh, well, it's a PowerPC G4. Um, it's the 17-inch model. I always like to get the last of something. So, um, so naturally if it was, if I was going to have the P the, if I was going to record 
on a power book, then it had to be the last of the power books. And so I had to get one of those, uh, you know, high definition screen power books. Uh, I think they were made in 2006. And of course, I had to beef it all up to two gigs of RAM. That's the maximum that it took. Uh, it's 1.67 gigahertz. And um, the screen's not the same. Screen's from a 1.33 gigahertz, but it arrived with a cracked screen. So I just happened to have a different power book that I was trying out at the time and took its screen. And that was, that, that just took forever to get done. I will never do that again, uh, replacing the screen on, on any laptop. But whatever, it's working, and I'm super happy that I have it. Uh, how about you, Chris? I'm on an iBook G4, a uh, 12-inch um, 2004 model. It's one of the uh, Snow White iBooks. Um, one gigahertz processor, 1.25 gigabytes of RAM, um, 30 gig uh spinning 4200 rpm hard drive but i'm recording onto an external firewire ssd um so yeah so far this little thing has done pretty well oh and you've done a lot to it i i mean a lot with it uh which we'll discuss uh later on in the episode um yeah let's get started with the history and and go from there so um i'll well i'll start it off with the history uh, so it was uh, created with joint. The PowerPC was created with joint engineers from Motorola and IBM. It was part of what they call the AIM Alliance. And no, it's not AOL Instant Messenger. I always think of that when I hear AIM because I used AOL forever uh, back in the day. But no, it is the Apple, IBM, and Motorola Alliance. So um, PowerPC is largely based on IBM's earlier power architecture and power stands for performance optimization with enhanced risk uh performance computing so that's kind of the that's whole that's a backward m for sure yeah but it's awesome <laughs> because it's power <laughs> power uh so the power pc architecture is close enough to power the power architecture such that the same applications and os can run on e- uh, on on each other as long as some prep work is done first. So let's differentiate. There is PowerPC and there's Power. And they're different architectures, but they're both using RISC. And, and they're so closely related to each other that the, the software will run, but there's a, a additional prep work that needs to be done in order to get that to work, but it can, it can work. So it's just like any other, it's like having x86 applications that run, uh, but there could be some extra work to be done in the beginning to get it to run on your own architecture. They're very closely related. That's all you need to know. <laughs> um, so since 2006, uh, that the whole PowerPC architecture has been renamed to Power ISA or Power ISA. Uh, so this whole thing started with the 801 Research Project where John, I'm gonna totally destroy his name, but I was calling him John Cock. It could be Soaky, it could be Cocky, it could be, there's so many different ways of saying this name. I'm going to call him John Cock because he probably hates it. No, I'm kidding, John. It's C-O-C-K-E. There's an E at the end. And so, there it is. That's how I'm going to say it. Um, and he he developed the concept <laughs> of the risk architecture um, from 1975 to 1978. And then between 1982 and 1984, IBM began development on a 32-bit microprocessor based on RISC, which became the power instruction set architecture. 
Uh, <clears throat> hey, Chris, uh, I don't know if you want to cut this part out. Uh, do you want to read some parts or do you want me to just kind of plow through it? Um, I was going to ask if you wanted me to uh, to take over to take over for some of these. How do we know? Because uh, we're muting ourselves and stuff. And how, how do you? How do we do that? Just unmute or just stop talking. Yeah, but I don't want to interfere with. Uh, okay, so I'll just stop talking, and then you'll you'll just pick up. Uh, hopefully, the pauses won't sound weird in the recording. No, uh, truncate silence will handle it. And also, I'm not editing any of this out because I'm editing this on this machine as well. And it's a gigantic pain in the ass. All right. Well, everybody, this is unedited. <laughs> Unedited-edited-edited-ness. <laughs> and so uh, slow. And blooper. Here we go. Boom. Uh, where were we? Damn it. I lost uh, my You wanted me to start taking over. You wanted me to start talking about some of the stuff. <laughs> You're sounding like a chipmunk right now. <laughs> this thing is falling apart, dude. You better hurry up and talk. <laughs> I sound like a chipmunk. <laughs> Are you there? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm here. It's just, I don't know what's going on with the packets or something, but they're all coming in at the same time. And it's like... <laughs> it's kind of happening um, here, too. It seems like whenever it's under high CPU load, it starts doing that. Let's just plow through it. <laughs> All right. We got to make it work, dude. So the the original power processor was a high-performance multi-chip design and one of the first superscalar RISC processors. It was widely considered to be one of the first true RISC processor designs. Uh, work began on a single-chip power microprocessor. Uh, Apple had experimented with their own in-house processor called Aquarius, where they became convinced that the, that the future was in risk. Uh, later, IBM approached Apple on developing a processor based on the power architecture, and Apple asked Motorola to join in, and the AOL Instant Messenger Alliance was born. <laughs> you got mail. You got mail. The AIM Alliance was born. Motorola had their own 88,000 series processor processors using RISC, however, sales were poor. The power processor was made bus compatible with the 88,000 series to bring the chip to market far faster, and thus the PowerPC was born. It was used in a number of applications, most famously the Power Mac line of personal computers, which you and I are currently talking on right now, torturing ourselves with. Uh, the first Power Macintosh, the first Power PC Macintosh. Yeah, it was the was first Power the... PC, right? Because the other first Macintosh was that one with the 1984 commercial that everybody knows. You wrote about. Power. I wrote Power. It's a Power Mac. <laughs> the power Macintosh. The first Power PC Macintosh was the 6100 Macintosh Performa. Um, it used a Power PC 601 processor. And it was known as the Pizza Box model. Uh, it interesting. It also came in a DOS compatible model that supported DOS and Windows 3.1, and it was upgradable to a G3 500 megahertz through third-party solutions from Sonnet. Do you want to take over the for the PowerPC generations part? Yeah, but isn't that amazing? I mean, they could grab uh, you could grab one of the first generation PowerPCs and upgrade it to a G3. I mean. Try doing that today, you know? 
with the exception of a few AMD boards back when AM3 Plus socket was available that you could you could upgrade, you know, to like the last AM3 socket and it was a pretty big leap in generation of performance. Uh, that's not seen today. You always have to buy a new motherboard and it's it's always for that generation. There are some times when you have two generations, but this is three freaking generations from, you know, starting at, you know, 50 megahertz to 500 megahertz. I mean, that's just insane. So, I thought that was pretty neat. Also, the DOS compatible models, insane. they had a board. It was like a x86 board that uh, that you can that you can add and then you can install MS-DOS. So, that was also pretty neat, uh, you know, to kind of give it that whole, not backwards compatibility, but just compatibility in general because a lot of applications were made back then for MS-DOS and things like that. Um, very cool. Yeah, I'll very, go very through cool. the PowerPC generations. And my browser stuck. Oh, here we go. No, no, it's not stuck. It's just, uh, it's thinking. Okay, so... And uh, that's why I'm doing it as text files. No, we got to do the whole thing. <laughs> Let's get video up. <laughs> um, we actually did right, video so chat. So, PowerPC generations, according to Motorola, so we had the the G1. The G1 was the, the 601, the 500, and the 800 family processors. It was introduced in 1993, and it ranged from 50 to 120 megahertz. Due to its large cache... It actually outperformed the Pentium and it supported symmetric multiprocessing, which means you could have more than one processor on the same board. Uh, then you had the G2 and the G2 consisted of the 602, 3, 4, the 620, 8200 and 5000 families. The one we're really focused on here is the 602. Um, although I do touch on uh, a little bit on the actual, actually the 615, which isn't really mentioned on here. Uh, so. They also supported symmetric multiprocessing, and they also they were used on a lot of Mac clones. At the time, Apple wasn't doing fantastic uh, in the market, and in order to get more market shares, market share, they decided to open their um, I don't want to say open their architecture, but just allow clones to to exist without lit uh, litigation. And so there was a lot of uh, clone companies, and um, in researching this. A, a lot of people are saying that the Mac clones were actually better than the computers that Apple was making at the time. Um, they would either make them faster or uh, cheaper or faster and cheaper. And uh, yeah, so so a lot of people were buying Mac clones back then. Yeah, um, they were severely undercutting Apple. Absolutely. I, I think that one of them was made by Daystar and Daystar actually ended up... Uh, Using the the processor on uh, the processor from Daystar, they they could get uh, higher frequencies and everything on the on the same chip. So they were actually clocked faster. It, it was a pretty neat concept that Apple allowed. Um, although that was uh, quickly shut down after uh, what was it? After Steve Jobs came back around ninety seven. Yeah, that um, was that was his uh that was his first act. He he killed the clones. Yeah, attack of the clones. Um. So, let's see. For the, for the G2, uh, they support a symmetric multiprocessing. were used by Mac clones and also by IBM servers and workstations. And one of my favorite kinds of computers, even though I've grown to not be as friendly towards Morphos, uh, Amiga. So, the Amigas were also using the accelerator cards and they were powered by G2s. Uh, they could reach speeds of up to 300 megahertz. 
There is one chip that I did not mention on the G2 line. It's mostly because it was never really mass produced, and that is the 615. And uh, what's really interesting about the 615, it, it actually had both PowerPC and x86 instruction set on chip. So you could potentially run both. Uh, you know, you could potentially run MS-DOS or Windows and Mac OS on the same chip. I thought that was, you know, pretty, pretty cool. That is um, really cool. And that, and that brings us to the G3, the 750. Yeah. You want to talk about Arthur? I would love to talk about Arthur. Uh, the G3, codenamed Arthur, was introduced in November 1997. Um, its low-powered nature was ideal for laptops, but unfortunately it did not support symmetric uh, multiprocessing. It reached speeds of up to 500 megahertz while consuming 6 watts and outperformed the P2 in both power and performance. We have written here that the G3 went up to 500 megahertz, but I had a um, an iBook G3 that went up to 700. Really? Huh. So that brings us to the G4, which is what we're currently using. A uh, codenamed Max was introduced in August 1999 and ranged from 350 megahertz to 1.67 gigahertz. It contained a 128-bit vector processor unit similar to Intel's MMX instruction set, and it was called Altivec. Yeah. Have you ever seen those uh, commercials? It, is, it would say, like, the G4 with Altivec. That's usually how they they advertised it. Right, right. Yeah, anyway. Uh, all right, yeah, so... Uh, as other chips in the previous generation, the G4 underwent a revision. It was labeled the 7450, and it added enhanced Altivec and extended the execution pipeline from 7 uh, <coughs> to 7 from 4, and it had a larger L2 cache and many other enhancements. That's actually what I have. I ended up buying a mirror drive door uh, dual 1 gigahertz machine. I bought it on, uh, I think it was OfferUp for 30 bucks. And the thing is in pristine condition. The only thing is that the that the person that sold it to me couldn't turn it on, and it was mostly because of a dead battery. It's one of those dead uh, what is it PWRM or something? It was one of the dead batteries. Uh, they had they had different kind of batteries back then. I think it was a L three or something. Anyway, yeah. so yep. <clears throat> How many Macs did you buy? Oh come on, man! That means I need to talk about my hoarding problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, in my effort, well, you know, so I, I really enjoyed working with, with the mirror drive door. And I was like, well, why not get a laptop? So, I did. And I got the first power book, which was a 1.33 gigahertz. And then I was like, well, this wasn't the last of its kind. I need to get the last of its kind. So, then I got a 1.67 gigahertz. Mind you, I did not pay that much for it. My 1.33 gigahertz was like 50 bucks. And my 1.67 was 20 bucks because the guy said it was broken and it was. The screen was shattered. So it wasn't that expensive. And my mirror drive door was 30 bucks. And then I was like, well, you know, I'm already here. What, what if I get the last of the power PCs? And that would be the G5 quad. And I clocked in at 2.5 gigahertz and it is water cooled. And uh, I bought that one for 60 bucks. Um, so yeah, overall I spent, I don't know, close to 200 and I have all these machines now and whatever, man, it, it is what it is. I have, <laughs> and, uh, 
And the G5 is probably my absolute favorite. I can do the most on that machine. Uh, my power book being the close second and my mirror drive doors somewhere. It, it's really cool to look at though. But my G5, oh man, I love that thing. I, I probably use that. Uh, right now I'm using it more than uh, my main PC actually because I'm not really messing around with my main PC. And I think we'll get to that later on in this podcast, how much we love our power PC computers. That's a that's a really cool collection, and you're, you're not a hoarder. You're just enthusiastic and a collector. I'm a technology hoarder. Um, I uh, salvage. You you also got a lot more bang for your buck than I did. I spent $115 on one pristine condition iBook G4 in its original box with all of his with all of its accessories, but still, your money went a lot further than mine did. You've always you always were better at that than I was. Well, I, I also failed to mention that I ended up buying a monitor because, of course, the G5 needed to be accompanied with a equally time proper, or what do you call it? I guess time time proper period, time period proper <laughs> uh, monitor. So I bought an Apple Cinema Display uh, for the G5. And, uh, and then I was like, well, how do you max out the G5 and that's by adding 16 gigs of RAM so I bought that too and then I went a little crazy and tried to find a Quadro FX 4500. Of course they're almost impossible to find nowadays that are not the version that you can flash or that already pre-flash or come from Apple so I ended up paying about 155 bucks for that video card. Not proud of it but uh, yep I had to add the ultimate G5 and I am almost there. Oh damn I didn't know you found one. Yeah, I did actually. In of all places, Walmart. So Walmart Online had the uh, had this. They have the store where other sellers can sell their stuff. And I found a what appeared to be a PNY, a penny PNY uh, Quadro FX, which those seem to have this metal L-shaped uh, bracket in the back that covers the RAM. That one's the one that you can flash to use on the G5. And so the bad thing is, is that there was only one available and the guy wanted uh, 155 bucks for it. Um, I still don't have it yet. So hopefully he sends the right thing, but uh, it's my, it's pretty much my best bet to have the ultimate G5. Uh, If it turns out that he just didn't have it, um, I'll just have to get a refund and be upset. But, but yeah, there's actually a lot of YouTubers out there that are wanting to build the ultimate G5. I, I thought it was alone in this. Uh, but no, there's actually uh, quite a bit of uh, YouTubers. Uh, one of them is called Broken Electronics. He kind of looks like Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. Um, and uh, and and he has one. And he was talking about his Quadro FX and everything. There's another Spanish guy that also has one. And he was comparing it to other cards. And Anyway, it's the Ultimate the ultimate G5. Um, but yep, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty much it. I love that thing. Sounds like a vacuum cleaner. Still love it. Very cool. Um, okay. Well, speaking of G5s, so the, <clears throat> what they call a G5, this, this gets a little bit weird because Motorola actually tried to make their own G5 and afterwards G5 kind of went to a different chip, but the G5 from Motorola was going to be the 7,500 and 8,500 families. Um, but Motorola wasn't really calling it the G5. It was Apple that usurped the name, um, so what happened was Motorola was attempting to create a 64-bit PowerPC processor, but the chips were failing in early production and they could not deliver 
Um, so that, that actually meant that Apple ultimately went to IBM. They chose the 970 chip instead that they had uh, already being developed. So that's what they called the G5. So IBM's 970 processor, the quote-unquote G5, was introduced in 2002, but used in 2003's Power Mac G5 line. And it was a 64-bit PowerPC processor. The FX line was a single-core unit, and then came the, the multi-core units, which is the MP. And that's what I have is the quad MP, so the 970 MP, uh, but with two 970 MPs on it. So two dual-core units, so you have the quad. Um, I guess that's where the quad comes from. And the G5 um, came to some prestige. Yeah. It is. Do uh, you want to talk about the Virginia Tech? Yeah, it was used by Virginia Tech to create the third fastest supercomputer in the world in 2003. It was called System X. It was a cluster of 1,100 Power Mac G5 towers. If you can imagine the amount of room that took up. Um, clustered with InfiniBand networking. Later, they were replaced with XServes, and they were decommissioned in 2012. But um, what was interesting about it was they, um, even though it required so many computers, for the third fastest supercomputer in the world, they spent half as much money as the second fastest supercomputer in the world. So it was one of the most economic, economical supercomputers ever built. That is really cool. I remember when they were trying to make a, when they trying to make a supercomputer out of PlayStation 2s or something like that. I remember PlayStation that 3s. PlayStation 3s, yeah, which were powered by PowerPC. Boom. That's right. Um, so speaking of G5 again, the, uh, IBM could never get the power consumption on G5s low enough to be placed on a laptop. So there are no G5 laptops. Uh, unfortunately, um, the G5s are very power hungry. Um, that's just the way that they were built and IBM just couldn't get yields to be low enough to, to be able to fit it to a laptop. Uh, that leads us to the G6 and actually it's 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 just interesting uh, to know because there was of course no G6. Uh, Apple went to the uh, Intel platform, but that doesn't mean that power went away. It just kind of evolved from there, and Apple was no longer using it. Um, so in regards to G6, that was a 7600 family. The Freescale efforts uh, to create a multi-core RISC-based processor processor 64-bit. Uh, this was all in parallel to the the G5 efforts. But, you know, this, this quote-unquote G6 didn't actually materialize until 2010 when Freescale released the E5500 processor. Again, Apple did not use this. This is, this is for other applications. But I just thought it was, uh, you know, worth it to, to mention. Who is Freescale? Eh, it was a company. Yeah, we don't really, we don't talk about them. No. <laughs> <laughs> they make, uh, no, the, it's, it's, it's for, like, enhanced applications and things like that. I don't know what I'm saying. Well, then there was the, uh, <laughs> strangely, there was an IBM uh, Power Series 820 and 850 ThinkPad laptop running uh, PowerPC 603E at 100 megahertz. 
So, oh. um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I think I skipped a section. Um, no, that's just how many Apple computers I counted. I counted about four, 43 of them. There was a lot, especially in the beginning. They had a lot of different lines. And then Steve Jobs came and just said, hey, we only want to do four systems uh, at any one time. So they cut all these other systems. But yeah, they were, there was a lot of Performas and Quadros and things like that. Um, then after, after this whole thing happened with, uh, you know, with, with Apple moving, um, there were actually consoles being developed while the G5, uh, was out. So around 2005, the Xbox 360 came out that was powered by a power, power by an, a power PC processor. So was the Sony, even though they use their own cell architecture, it was still risk-based and yes, the Panasonic 3DO had a power PC processor. So, uh, yeah, very, very neat. Uh, Nintendo with the Wii, Wii and Wii U, actually, they had those as well. Um, I just wrote on here which operating systems they were supported by with the power PC. I just figured that, you know, it, it was, it was supported for quite a while. Uh, if we look at it, uh, it was supported from system 712. Okay. That would be Mac OS 712 all the way to macOS X uh, 10.5.8, so that being the last version of Leopard with all its patches. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good run. Um, nowadays, you have some Linux ports. You have uh, Ubuntu. I believe the last Ubuntu, though, supported by PowerPC is 16.04. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. Then we have Void, which I'm sure you'll you'll be able to talk to. Uh, since you're using that. And uh, Debian, there's a port of Debian. It's it's actually current. It's a current version. And Yellow Dog, which I guess apparently is dead. Uh, That's too bad for that. Um, OpenBSD is also supported by, uh, by, by PowerPC, or they have a PowerPC port. And NetBSD. So that actually brings us to PowerPC today. Um. Uh, not of the notes, but there's also a um, line of um, of computers called the Pegasus, um, and it's a power PC based desktop computer from a company called Genesee, and uh, it supports operating systems such as MorphOS and Linux, and uh, Power Max can also be emulated through the Mac on Linux emulator. Uh, MorphOS targets the Pegasus as well as uh, PowerPC Max. Yeah, we had some fun installing MorphOS on, on our PowerPCs as well. Um, I, I'm i going to go on the record and say that I did not enjoy it as much as using something like Tiger or Leopard or even macOS Classic, but you had better a better experience with it and probably more patience than I did with Morphos. Um, well, so, pa- Power, PC, power today, PC today, right? Yeah, Power PC today. Uh, do you wanna do you wanna go over that? It has since become a I never say this word right niche niche. It has since become a uh, niche in personal computers, but a niche market in personal computers, but remains popular for uh, embedded and high performance processors. Now called Power ISA. IBM continues to develop power cores for use in their ASIC products. They have power system servers with Power 10 chips. 
uh, PowerPC was between Power 2 and Power 3. It's still used yeah. in... I'm sorry, I can't quite read this. Uh, Amiga 1 and third-party Amiga OS 4 personal computers. Ah, yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of stop there for... So, so these system servers that they built with Power 10 chips, I mean, PowerPC in its line was built between Power 2 and Power 3 generations. I mean, it's it's gone a long way. And I would love to get my hands on a Power 10 chip, but something tells me that I'm going to have to work in some kind of server farm in order to use that. And it's probably used to, you know, hack brains and things like that. Yeah, I don't think there's any uh, consumer-grade computer that uses it. We're going to use it to play games. <laughs> we'll just play Doom 2 on it. <laughs> that seems to be the popular thing. Um, there are groups such as the Linux Power PC Notebook Project, which are trying to revitalize getting Linux operating systems into Power PC Notebooks. So um, that's something that I definitely need to look into. And uh, that brings us into the interesting topic of uh, virtualizing Mac OS, which I bet you would love to talk about. Yeah, so um, one of the one of the ways that you can virtualize macOS is by using uh, and by macOS I mean like the PowerPC variant. Uh, you can use SheepShaver. SheepShaver supports all the way up to nine oh four macOS nine oh four classic. Um, it's GUI based setup. It's slower. It does have some sound issues, uh, but you know one thing that it does have is the share volume for transferring files to and from. And I thought that was pretty neat. I've seen it before with VirtualBox that you can set up a a, uh, a share and then you can just transfer files to and from. You can do that on SheepShaver. SheepShaver is not that bad. It's just a little bit slow and it depends on the machine that you have. On my G5, SheepShaver is, it's it's like it's like nothing, right? I mean, G5 can handle it. No problem. I'm over there playing QuickTime files. I'm playing games that use QuickTime. Um, it, it was pretty fast. But when I load it up on the mirror drive door, it, you could start to see it's, uh, it, you know, it's slower. You have a different emulator called, uh, I'm going to struggle here because I like calling it Kimu, but I guess people just call it QEMU, whatever it's called. Uh, it's a full system emulator, full system emulation. It actually emulates various systems. Uh, it's more updated than SheepShaver and uh, there's no ability to share the volume though. At least not that I found. If there is, you know, let me know. Um, but I, I just couldn't find a way to do that. Uh, it is command line based setup. Uh, I did find an app called Q. And it was just like Q with, with an exclamation mark or something like that. Uh, which provided a front end for Kimu. Uh, but in my experience, it was buggy and unstable. Uh, I tried setting up various OSs on it and it just kept crashing. Um, I just couldn't get it to work. Uh, Kimo is fast though, and it supports up to OS 10 Leopard. So uh, if you wanted to get the best performance, yeah, definitely you want to try Kimo. Then there's Basilisk 2, and you can emulate Max with 68K, but it's not PowerPC, so I'm kind of leaving it out of these notes. Uh, but people do emulate, um, you know, 68K Mac processors. 68K came before the PowerPC. That was actually what Motorola had, and that's what early Macs ran on. So that's why uh, you know people are virtualizing uh, using that uh, using that emulator. They're able to virtualize Mac OS. Uh, Chris, I think you put the section down on Mac on Linux. Yeah, on PowerPC Linux, um, you it's not developed anymore. But there was a program called Mac on Linux, 
and inside of a Linux environment, you could <clears throat> run Mac OS 9 and Mac OS X. Um, its only requirements were, you know, running a PowerPC machine and Linux, then you just installed this program, and it didn't have to emulate very much because, um, because it's only emulating a PowerPC machine. It didn't have to emulate the CPU, and it was able to boot your Mac OS X or Mac OS 9 installation from your existing partition. And it ran at near native speed. Um, graphics were fluid. Everything worked great. Um, sound even worked. And I tried to get it to run, but unfortunately its last update was in 2007 and I couldn't get it to compile. Uh, it's not in any package manager anymore, so unfortunately um, I don't think there's going to be much luck with that effort. Yeah, that's too bad. We're going to talk about software. Um, I don't have a section here for it, but definitely I'd like to talk about it. Um, but before that, uh, the operating systems that we, well, um, that, that we used that were Apple-based were uh, Tiger 10.4.11. That was the last release. Uh, and I primarily, I used it for just speed. So it runs a lot better on my laptop. And you can use OS Classic uh, applications on it. And it'll run pretty good. Uh, you don't have to run, you don't have to use any emulation or anything like that. Um, it, you just have to have the system files on your root directory and then just tell Tiger where the OS 9 uh, system files are. It'll find it and it'll actually boot it up as soon as, well, if you tell it to boot up uh, on system boot, it'll it'll just automatically boot uh, Classic as well. And then you can run both Classic apps, which are anything made from OS 9.22 and below. Uh, I think with the exception of those 68K applications. Um, and, and, and then also you can boot any OS 10 application as well. So that, that's the most compatible OS and fastest one that I tested. Then you have Leopard and Leopard's, uh, the last release was 10.5.8, the last official OS 10 for use with PowerPC. That's what I'm using on my G5. Uh, Leopard is slower on my mirror drive door and it is also noticeably slower on my, on my laptop, but on the G5, it doesn't care. It's just, it's just like running DOS or something like that. Seriously, it doesn't care. It's just super fast. Um, then there's this early version of Snow Leopard that you can run on PowerPC. I didn't know, and actually a lot of people didn't. It was found out uh, that that you can run early betas of 10.6 all the way to build uh, 10A190. That's the one that's been most widely uh, spread on the internet. You can even find it on archive.org. Um, somebody made, I think it was Action Retro channel on YouTube. He, uh, he provided a, a full DMG file. It's a full image that you can just restore to your hard drive. And then there you go. You have that latest build of Snow Leopard. It actually, it actually has some modifications there from some earlier text that made it more compatible. It fixed some issues. And, uh, and on the community and the Mac forums, there's, there's people actively trying to, um, to, to kind of further develop that OS, that 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 Snow Leopard, and and providing it with uh, either modified texts files, which are system files, uh, they're extension files. Um, I think some people might even be writing their own if they were open source. They've been doing that. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if later on we'll see a fully working Snow Leopard build without, you know, with minimal bugs. Right now, when you run 10A190. 
when I know uh, there are some bugs and stuff like that present, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the future uh, you're going to see uh, better and better versions of 10.6 uh, modified versions uh, to work with PowerPC. Uh, that actually really, that brings me over to a really good point on the PowerPC and why I'm so excited about it. I, I like Amiga. Don't get me wrong. Listen to the episode about Amiga and everything, but... I am not as I was not as excited and I'm still not as excited as I am today with the PowerPC and the reason being is because the freaking community it is awesome. There are people actively developing to this day. Not that they're not developing for Amiga, but I'm just saying they're 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 taking these things to, you know, to today's standards and um using 104 Fox as my browser um, on my PowerPC, it's actually been pretty good. Yes, there's limitations. You're not going to be able to run YouTube and you're not going to be able to run, I don't know, what is the other one, Chris? Reddit? Yeah, Reddit. Um, um, yeah. Anything really JavaScript heavy. <laughs> anything JavaScript heavy. But people are actively developing on it and, and, and for it and it just keeps going. I found a theme to give my leopard a fresh new coat of paint and my leopard looks like High Sierra, which is amazing because it's really modern looking and I'm still running on leopard on a machine made in 2005. I'm running in 2021 and it's able to do a lot. And actually, by the way, YouTube runs just fine on my G5. Uh, there's some optimizations that were made in the background and everything. Uh, I can run 720p videos. I've even ran 1080p videos. Um, not something I can do on the G4, but... I'm just saying the testament to the G5 is it's definitely there. So credit is where you know credit's due. That's incredible. <clears throat> what about you, Chris? Uh what about me regarding what? I don't know. What do you like about PowerPC? Um, like you said, I really do like how the the, the, the community is keeping these machines relevant. Um I had a lot of fun playing with a um PowerMax Sawtooth uh dual processor setup. I think back in 2006, 2007, um, and I'm hoping to get my hands again, hands on that same machine again uh, sometime in the future. I still know the person that has it. Um, I upgraded the living hell out of it and installed a um, Sonnet. It came with a dual 450 megahertz uh, G4 processor and mm -hmm. processors, but I upgraded it to a Sonnet 1.2. 1.2 gigahertz setup. Um, installed a video card that was compatible with um, OSX Leopard's Time Machine because you had to have a certain uh, model of video card in order to get the 3D effects to work and everything. So I got that going, and it it, it ran Leopard really good, uh, really well. And as far as running it today, um, Ten Four Fox is incredible. Uh, it's a uh, kind of a fork of Firefox that is still actively maintained. Firefox uh, kind of killed their own portability when they started going with a, a Rust-based setup. Um, you can't get modern Firefox running on PowerPCs like you could back in, say, 2012. So 10.4 Fox is an effort to keep a browser modern and patched with with security updates for PowerPC machines. And like you said, there's a lot you just can't do. There are some things that just won't render 
um, the modern web is diverging just too far and too fast now, but it's it can still do a lot. Um, other browsers like Arctic Fox um, give a viable alternative on Linux. And uh, under software availability, you wrote uh, Macintosh Garden and Macintosh Repository. Uh, they have collected software new and old into one place and have made it really, really easy to um, find software to get these old machines useful again. And for some reason, even though they're slow and irrelevant today, I mean, yeah, we've we've played with, with DOS machines and those are fun and playing with other older machines is always amusing, but for some reason the 2002 to 2006 era of Macintosh computers uh, always held a special place with me. I guess it's because I was a raging um, Mac zealot back in the day. But I've had a lot of fun playing with with this iBook, seeing what I can make it do. And I, I can do a good chunk of my job on it if I wanted it to. Uh, when it comes to systems administration, when it comes to coding, a lot of the um, development tools that I run today, I'm running on Linux on here and to some extent on OS X on here. Um, what I also love is that it gives you really good perspective. We've done so much with such modest hardware. And when we look at our 4, 8, 10 core i7s and i9s with 32 gigs of RAM and uh, ultra high definition displays, we really haven't gained that much. We're doing mostly the same stuff on these old machines, and we're doing it back then as we are now. So I don't see how we can really justify the increase, how we can justify having such powerful hardware when nothing works that much better. Yeah, and I think what you mean is the evolution of hardware. I mean, we've definitely gone, we've evolved in hardware-wise, but a lot of our functions are still the same. I can send an email on this PowerPC. And I can serve the web. Okay, it's not going to be as, as feature-rich. Um, but I'm on a single-core uh, processor with 2 gigs of RAM. You're on a single-core processor with 1.2 gigs of RAM. I mean, it, it's just it's incredible what we can do with such modest hardware. And today, you know, how do you, how do you justify such a leap in technology when we're still basically doing the same thing, uh, just, just with heavier software? Um, and, and I think, you know, I think that that's where, that's where the value of these power PCs really comes in. It's like the longevity that it had, uh, granted longevity, if you count today's efforts of the community, if you didn't, then, um, Apple did something that I was upset about. I'm still upset about. Um, and I don't know if I want to start raging on that again. I've raged on it for about 16, what is it? 15 years now, but <laughs> Right. Anyway, yeah, my be my beloved G5 was shafted. Um, <laughs> so uh, the uh, seriously, man, if you were a G5 owner back in 2005 and 2006 happened in 2007, and all of a sudden all the software started. No, it's even worse. Whenever L Lion came out and they completely shut you off, 
anyway, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm off. I'm off that soapbox. I'm, I don't want to keep hashing it back because I've been Take upset a for a long time. Breathe. Yep, taking a breath. Breathing. Yeah, so uh, just the modest hardware that we're using, single core processors, not that much memory, and yet we're able to do all this stuff. Um, you know, people are doing this kind of stuff on x86 processors and they're retro. I'm talking about like they're running Windows 98, they're playing modest games as well and everything. But man, look what we're able to do with the hardware that we have. I mean, we're fil- we're filming, <laughs> we're recording this podcast on this. Uh, I am not sure. I'm sure it's doable. We just haven't done it yet to do this thing on a uh, on a on an x86 processor on a Pentium three years, even a Pentium two. But I'm just saying, like we can do a lot of the same stuff that we're doing nowadays with modest hardware from back then. So the evolution and everything, and and yes, it's there. But have we really gone that far in computing in regards to have we changed our work? You know, I I don't know, not that much. I would say uh, when it comes to this. I mean, you know, yes, now there's remote. Uh, you know, to, how do you how do you run Zoom on this? How do you work from home on this? Actually, it is possible to work from home on this. And if you use meetings the way that we're doing a meeting right now, you could potentially do that too. It's just, you know, it's just there's no new software developed for it. And everything's developed now for all this, you know, all this other hardware that's been developed. So, but hey, you got to keep buying, right? Otherwise, the, the market doesn't work. And, and yeah, so that's where it's at. Guess which one boots faster? My iBook G4 or the 2019 fully loaded top of the line MacBook Pro that work gave me to use. This sounds like a trick question because I know you want me to say G4. I know you do. But if you took that 2019 Mac and you stripped everything out of it, I'm pretty sure you can get it to boot pretty quick. The G4 boots faster. (laughs) Yeah. The G4 actually yep. boosts faster, running a 4200 RPM hard drive it's amazing. at 1 gigahertz. It boots as fast or sometimes faster than a 2019 i7 MacBook Pro with 32 gigs of RAM running an NVMe SSD because they've loaded it down with that much shit. And they being Apple has, lo- have, has loaded macOS down with that much shit. And to be fair, I mean, I'm sure Microsoft did the same thing with Windows. Actually, I know. Um, so it is also bogged down. It is not just Apple. It's just, you know, it's, it's a good comparison. I mean, you know, it, you know, back then the software was lean because it had to run on lean hardware. And, uh, and also the same thing I could say about even earlier systems. Um, they, they made it to where it could just be, it's, it was good for the time. Um, I remember booting an IBM, what was it? Uh, XT, IBM XT, and it would immediately go to DOS 301. Um, but yeah, you know, now it's everything so bloated that it takes forever for everything to boot because you have to have every service on because it just has to be on, you know? Why do you need so many services on if really all you're going to do is surf the web? You don't need all of these different services to turn on, but you know, that's, that is what it is. That's how you can justify buying new computers, you know, basically. And then they make your old stuff uh, irrelevant. Um, True. I really, really like the PowerPC community. I'm, I am really happy. I can't wait to post this episode on there. Uh, kudos to, kudos to everybody working in the community. Um, 
it's so great. Macintosh Garden is fantastic. It is super fast, especially if you use that mirror.de link. Everything is super fast. Um, there's fantastic everything on there from applications to games. Um, there, there, it's just great. Uh, you, you can, okay, so let's say you don't play the game with the latest graphics, but you know what? My G5 is playing Quake 4, and yeah, Quake 4 was made back then, but it's still fun today to play it. It's like playing Doom. You don't get tired of it. And, uh, and same thing with Quake 1, Quake 2, 3, Descent 1, 2, 3, The Sims 1 and 2 with all the expansions, Sim City 1 through 4, all the Carmen San Diego's missed, tons of adventure games. Uh, I don't know. The list goes on and on. Uh, Age of Empires 1, uh, Age of Empires, what was it? 3, 2, Rise of Nations, Starcraft, Warcraft 1 and 2, World of Warcraft, I mean, you know, it's, it, of course, World of Warcraft is not the latest version, but still, it's just it's just fantastic that it's able to play all this stuff. Um, and these are heavy games for the system. They're quote-unquote heavy for the system. But um, but still, it's able to do it. Diablo 2, uh, Quake 3 runs fantastically well. Even on my mirror drive door it, uh, machine, 1 gigahertz, it runs really well. Um, it's actually a really well-optimized game. I'm sure it'll play well on your iBook. Uh, Quake Quake Three ran great on an on an iMac G three. Yeah, so uh, it's uh, it's good code, good code. It's a testament of uh, actually that was John Carmack's code. Yeah, so props to him. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else. What other great things to say about it? I'm oh, just I've... happy I found it. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. I was just gonna say I'm I'm just happy that that I kind of stumbled upon it by just finding that mirror drive door buying it and seeing what's out there and I found this whole another community uh, likewise um, I wrote a whole bunch of notes myself on um, what we can do what we can't do uh, pros and cons to the different operating systems that we tried um, and to various applications that have similar functionality I'm not sure if you saw it in there that was that was on the other link. Um, I don't want to try to open that right now. I don't know okay. what will happen. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> do you, would you mind if I go into it? Yeah, let's do it. You, Maybe you we definitely can, uh, put a lot of work into it. Not only that, but Chris, I think that you've also become a valuable contributor to the community. You've developed some things for the community, um, such as the battery, um, fixing the battery in Linux, right? And... and and also uh, some of the other items that you've developed for for the PowerPC community and posted. So, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, thanks for turning me on to the Mac Rumors PowerPC uh, forums. Um, that place is where most of the work, se- work seems to be happening. So that's a really fun place to hang out. Um, <clears throat> I broke it up into what can we do, what can't we do, Operating systems. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Audio, video conferencing, web browsing, and messaging and coding, and server administration. Um, I guess for the sake of time, we won't go over all of it. But for what we can do, we can do light web browsing. So by light, I mean light on JavaScript, sites that don't use a lot of modern web tech. While many pages do render well in 
10 4 fox in art in arctic fox there's a limit for example uh github renders mostly fine until you try to click on the link that shows you the clone urls that bit of javascript is just broken not implemented in the browsers that we're using so you have to know what the url structure is like if you want to clone any repositories um YouTube, unless you're on the fully blown um, quad G5, forget forget using YouTube in your web browser. Uh, You can still watch YouTube using programs like uh, YouTube DL, which is a command line utility, and mPlayer. Or there's a great uh, project that you can read about on the PowerPC forums called PowerPC Media Center. And it's a... uh, collection of menus and scripts where all you have to do is copy a URL, press a keyboard shortcut, and it'll start <clears throat> playing the YouTube video in a in an, in an external video player of choice. And running it outside of the web browser means it runs much faster, much easier on the CPU, and is an all-around much nicer experience. Uh, one of my personal favorites was MPS YouTube, which is a command line YouTube browser. You can search, you can browse channels, you can browse playlists, um, you can specify which player you want it to pop up in. It's really, really flexible. And I think one of my favorite ways of even browsing YouTube on a modern machine, because honestly, I don't want to be in the web browser. I don't want to hear the ads. I don't want to see the ads. And doing it that way means you don't at all. And the the videos are just there and fast, and there's just nothing in your way. Um, <clears throat> do you want to talk about your experience dealing with uh, YouTube at all? So I use YouTube on uh, mainly on the G5 because because it can. Um, I also tried using this site called Want YouTube. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't get it to load right. There were some examples online on how to do it. And the idea was to just grab the URL that you're trying to watch, put it on the site, and it was supposed to transcode it for you on a, I think it was a remote server. And, and it's all done on the back end. And then you just watch it on that same site. It's a single link. Uh, so it depends on whatever you copy uh, from YouTube. The problem with my setup was that every time I went to YouTube, um, it wouldn't load the entire page and I wasn't able, able to really search. I noticed that when I use this uh, and another really great thing that the community has done is that not only can you run 10.4 Fox, but also you can run this file, this, this preferences file that people call 10.4 pep, which is kind of like a, you know, like pepping up is what they're trying to refer to uh, 10.4 Fox in order to make it run faster and um, and in doing that it seems like it eliminated some service and it didn't allow YouTube to run at all like I, I was just getting I was actually just getting blank gray screens I couldn't couldn't navigate the site I think I suspect it was because 10.4 pep but it's worth having because it, it definitely helps with the speeding up the uh, the modern web a bit um, so yeah I really didn't get that far with YouTube other than the G5 um, I did try an operating system called Phoenix. It's a Linux-based operating system for PowerPC 64. And, uh, and that had a ton of different modifications done to YouTube. 
in order for it to run very smoothly on the G5. Uh, but however, like I said, it runs fine on Leopard. Not super great. It runs fine. Um, but you know, it's uh, it seems like Phoenix took it to the next. Running it on Phoenix is almost like running it on on any hardware today. Uh, running it on the G5 without Phoenix, just running it on Mac OS 10, uh, you do see that it's a little bit clunky, but it does run, and that's the important part. Uh, it just loads a little bit slower and things like that, but the videos do run. Um, I think your method, though, is probably the best method uh, to, to, to use on these uh, older machines, on the G4 especially, on these PowerPC machines, on the, the G4 line, uh, possibly even the G3 line. Um, so, yeah, and I think you, you made a contribution to the community in regards to some code that you made, right? Some script? Yeah, I'll, I'll go into that later. Um, well, yeah, I'm going to go into that later. Sounds good. Um, I don't know. You, you definitely delved into the other side of things like installing multiple operating systems from Morphos to Debian to, I think, didn't you try Mint PPC at one point? I was also going to go into all that later too. <laughs> Dude, I'm from the future. I can tell. <laughs> I, I know, I know everything you're going to say. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's further on in my notes. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, there was um, also listening to to music through various clients. Uh, for example, uh, you can't load up browser-based uh, media clients like uh, Pandora if you're old or Spotify. Um, but I was I was I was listening to Pandora through a command line client called uh, called Piano Bar. There's also a Spotify command line client that works great. Um, I I love uh, digitally imported FM radio, so that you can listen to through any player that supports a standard playlist file. So, and uh, Chris, are these things running on Linux or are they running on OS X or anything? Both. Both, okay. Just wanted to uh, uh, add that. Um, and also I could listen to local music stored through, uh, and, uh, and share through, through, uh, Samba file sharing. Um, of course you have older applications that still work great. And on the list of things that you can do is you can run alternate operating systems like <coughs> Linux, OpenBSD, NetBSD, and MorphOS. Uh, what we can't do, however is browse JavaScript-heavy websites or sites that use newer web tech. Um, you can't use anything that's written in Go. Go is a popular programming language uh, created by Google. A lot of things are built in it, and unfortunately, there's just no PowerPC support. So, for example, uh, the GitHub command line client written in Go, the Kubernetes management tool, uh, kubectl, yep, sorry, written in Go, so there's a lot of things that I do for my day-to-day -day work that rely on Go that I just can't do here. Uh, Node.js, um, can't do that because there's no PowerPC support. So modern JavaScript development is out. Uh, like you said, HD video is pretty much out unless you're on a, a beefed up G5. Power. <laughs> Power. Anything that uses Electron, uh, which is just basically a Chromium web browser in a window 
uh, that far too many applications use. It's a bloated hot mess, and too many things use it. Um, the Slack desktop client, the Signal desktop client, Visual Studio Code, the Atom text editor, Discord, the list goes on. So you, you won't get official applications that use Electron, even if they're open source on a PowerPC. Um, there are no official fully updated modern web browsers left for PowerPC. Sad, but true. Uh, you can't do anything that re that relies on WebRTC-based video conferencing, which is why we went through all these gyrations with the VPN and iChat. And unfortunately, many distributions, many Linux distributions, are dropping support for PowerPC. Um, next up, I have operating systems, and I know you wanted to talk about MorphOS. Yes, but before that, you actually reminded me of some things, some positive, because uh, that was pretty negative there, man. I don't like leaving it negative. Um, so, some of the things that I was able to do was uh, I was able to remote desktop into a modern Windows machine, and you would think, oh, well, you can just download the remote desktop client back from 2000 and whatever with uh, the Office 2000, what is it, 4, that ran on it, but, uh, but no, because... Windows has also uh, beefed up their security with remote desktop and they it will just not run. However, I did find a client that will run and it is for PowerPC, tested and it worked. Uh, that's one of the things I was able to do. Of course, you have the basic stuff like uh, um, if you wanted to uh, write anything or anything like that, you can use iLife09, iLife09 works. Uh, there was a lot of universal binaries, which were binaries written for both Intel and PowerPC. They run just fine. So I was able to run office applications um, such as, you know, iLife, uh, which has um, uh, iWork. I'm sorry. I kept saying iLife, uh, which included GarageBand and stuff like that, which you can also run, by the way. But I meant iWork. iWork, which has pages and and um, all these different apps, uh, you know, the Excel counterpart, PowerPoint and Word for that. You can also run LibreOffice. Uh, that will also run. And you can run um, Mac or uh, Mac version of Microsoft Office. However, you are limited to 2004. But hey, you know what? It's it's fine for doing office work. So uh, unless you're doing something convoluted, um, if you're just trying to write a novel, you can. If the guy could write it in, in WordStar on an MS DOS computer, uh, the Game of Thrones series, uh, you can definitely do anything on the PowerPC when it comes to writing and, and spreadsheets and things like that. Uh, other stuff that I was able to do, I was able to game and do some pretty heavy gaming. I was able to, um, I'm fairly confident you can run network games. However, I didn't try it. Uh, we didn't try it. It'd be fun to try some Duke and stuff like that. Um, what else did I have? Have I tried doing that? I'm trying to think. Uh, I was able to code a little bit in basic using real basic. That was fun. Uh, there's also all other code compilers as well. Um, so that, you know, there's, there's, there's a quite a, quite a few things that you can do. Um, you can do email, although I did not try Apple mail from back then. I suspect that using the IMAP function, somebody can correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, but I suspect that it should work. I don't know, but it should work with something like Gmail. Nope. Um, it, it will not I work. Need, no. 
Not work. Um, okay. It, it, won't su- it won't support uh, modern ciphers, modern TLS, and Google's current um, authentication system. What if we ran, um, and, and I didn't try this, so uh, there is that part. I didn't try using email um, in time to get this podcast out. Uh, I do need to see if there's other uh, versions of uh, other email clients, such as whatever version of Thunder uh, Thunderbird that I could potentially run on the PowerPC. Maybe that'll support it. I don't know. Um, yeah, photo editing. You can run all the way up to, I think it was Photoshop CS4. You can run on PowerPC, which is not a bad version at all. Actually, I use Photoshop CS for my day-to-day job back in 2005 and I was able to create an entire magazine publication so uh, using InDesign and uh, and Illustrator and Photoshop all on PowerPC uh, back then so and that was just on on regular Photoshop CS and the CS suite you can run all the way to CS4 on PowerPC and just fine so there is that you can make your uh, flash operating system that I've always wanted you could do that on PowerPC (laughs) It's going to happen someday. <laughs> Flash is going to come back with a vengeance. Um, I'm drawing a blank now, but uh, there's just so much that you can do. Oh, uh, one last thing. Uh, virtual PC. So you can run. Uh, it, it was made by Microsoft. Microsoft Virtual PC. It's it was not made, as robust as It was made by Connectix. Microsoft bought it. Sorry, you're right. I think Connectix made it all the way to version 6. 6.0. And then Microsoft bought it and they made version 7.0 and that was kind of it. There were some patches like 7.02, something like that. Uh, but but that was it. They never made an 8. Uh, VirtualBox, of course, is more robust and it's open source and it's free. But, uh, but VirtualPC actually did a pretty decent job. On my super duper G5, I was able to run Windows 98 and Windows XP uh, at the same time. Um, I was just kind of showing off at that point, but I just wanted to prove that it could be done. I was running operating systems side by side. So it, it is possible on, on PowerPC to run uh, virtual machines. Um, so yeah, DOSBox works, by the way. Boxer works, which is really great because you can it creates wrappers for your uh, DOS games. And, um, and I was able to get a nice collection of them and they played just fine in full screen. Uh, so that was uh, that was pretty neat to see. I, I think I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Boxer is so cool, and I regret that I did not play a single game uh, during all my testing. Um, so I'm going to have to catch up on all of that after the podcast, and we'll definitely have to get some uh, multiplayer action going. Yeah. Um, next part I put down was uh, just uh, some some pros and cons about the operating systems that I tried. So I'm I'm, I'm hoping we can get some some good discussion around this as well. Uh, some of it we've already covered. Uh, the first one I have is OSX Tiger. Um, for pros, it's the most optimized for our hardware, at least for my, for my hardware, the iBook G4. Um, it has the, you, you can do the most modern th- things on this version compared to say like Panther or Jaguar. Um, it easily looks better than every other operating system that I installed on this machine. Plays videos the smoothest, and everything just works. Suspend, hibernate, brightness, uh, media shortcuts, 
all that stuff. Uh, but cons, everything is outdated, and you're going to run into that a lot. You can't browse the web with built-in Safari because it does not support TLS 1.2 or 1.3, or I, I don't even know if it does 1.1. Um, ciphers are just missing. Uh, the list of certificate authorities built into OSX are beginning to get outdated, so you have to rely on the built-in list for something like 10.4 Fox. Um, anything modern encryption-related is going to be a struggle. But there are a lot of <clears throat> ways to get modern software on OSX Tiger. Uh, for example, there's um, Homebrew. There's an unofficial port of Homebrew called Tigerbrew that will uh, let you download some some command line utilities and compile them. There's also Mac Ports, which has a huge selection of software, but a lot of the um, a lot of the compile jobs are broken because uh, PowerPC Mac has been left behind by it. They still offer it. You can still download it. You can still install some things, but uh, your your mileage may vary. I'm guessing. Um, what was what was your experience with Tiger? It was fast, and um, I was able to um, mainly. I installed games uh, for just to see if they would run well on that classic mode. They did. I was able to play. Uh, I think it was Rebel Assault Two, and I played that just fine. Um, other stuff with Tiger Two, uh, I was able to. Um, my my mirror drive door machine just ran way better with it than Leopard, even including even just just the dock itself. The dock, when you would scroll left and right, it was struggling a little bit on my mirror drive door. On Tiger, it was super fast, super smooth. Everything worked out of the box. Um, the installation itself was pretty quick. It was way faster than Leopard. Um, and actually, the footprint was small. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if I was going to choose an operating system from back then, I would choose, for the most part, Tiger. However, there are things in, in that, that do require Leopard. Um, you can use uh, Leopard WebKit. Uh, it's it's a it's an alternative to 10.4 Fox. It's not as updated, but it is something that you can do. You can run other. Uh, you can run more updated versions of certain software on on uh, Leopard that you can't run on on Tiger. Uh, so I ran into that issue as well, uh, especially on the theming side. And there were some other things. Look, none of this stuff is very important. Uh, you know, the software that ran, runs on Tiger, that runs also on that runs on Leopard, that also happens to run on Tiger. Those are the main core functions and, you know, things like you're going to run Photoshop and things like that. But there are other things that just don't run unless you have uh, Leopard. Uh, another example was Boxer. I think it was 133. Couldn't run it on uh, Tiger. It requires Leopard. So uh, there was just some some minor things that I ran, uh, but Tiger itself is is a pretty smooth operating system on its own. Uh, I really like it. It's fast. Um, if I was going to compare it to something, uh, not time period correct, because it's um, because this operating system would be older, but I would compare it to the Windows ninety eight second edition. Uh, and uh, you know, if I was going to compare it to kind of retro ness, um, so yeah. That's that's kind of where it sits in my book. I did not try Tiger on the G5. I have a feeling that if I did, it would blow. It'll just blow me away. I, I wouldn't even be able to reach the laptop, uh, the, the screen. I wouldn't be able to reach the keyboard. It's just so fast. You know, I'm just be like, ah, <laughs> I can't. It's too fast. Yeah. So I didn't try it on there. 
<laughs> leopard runs pretty fast on that. Um, but one of the sad things about leopard is you cannot run OS Classic, which is another thing that I'm wondering if the community, because I've already seen a few posts about it, you know, about potentially, you know, how do you bring classic support to, um, to leopard? And somebody threw out there the, well, if you can do that, what about if we get Snow Leopard with OS Classic support? Wouldn't that be the ultimate OS? And yes, it would be. That would be really cool as long as it ran just as smooth as Tiger. So, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. So that brings us to um, Morph OS. And if you want something that is still updated today that outperforms anything that Apple made for their own hardware, MorphOS is it. Um, it's a really interesting operating system. It's not Unix or Linux. It's an Amiga-like operating system. It runs stupid fast. Um, even on just 512 megabytes of RAM, it boots in less than a minute. Um, what's even more impressive is most everything just works, like Apple level of Everything just works. Suspend, media shortcuts. Um, it's impressive how much is possible. I can even do things like SSH, RDP, mount Samba shares, run Python. It also has a large uh, community. Um, not as large as, say, for you know running things on Tiger, but the community is there. It is active. Um, it includes a fairly modern and performant web browser and has a great and modern email client called Iris that does support Gmail. Um, cons, biggest con is it's not free. And it will uh, slow itself down after half an hour of use unless you pay them $100. And that only gives you a license for one machine. So unless you're really into the MorphOS or Amiga scene, um, probably not worth it. There's no package manager by default. Third-party options exist, but they're buggy. Uh, it tends to be pretty unstable, at least for me. It would freeze very often. Um, and the interface is very usable, but it takes some tweaking and a lot of getting used to because it does not um, it, it does not feed on the Mac or Microsoft way of doing interfaces. Um, it comes from the Amiga way of doing interfaces, and neither of us had Amigas. Um, Biro, I know you have, uh, some, 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 some words about this. Yeah. So that whole slowness thing sucked. Every 30 minutes I had to restart. The good thing about restarting is it restarts pretty quick. And if you even look at the power button, it restarts. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it was, it was kind of comical because I was thinking that pushing the power button either would put it to sleep or actually shut it down. But no, it would just restart. And, and, and it's actually like the craziest restart. You could be doing anything. And you as soon as you push the power button, boom, an immediate restart. Um, another thing that I ran into, and you're absolutely right, is the UI. I didn't get used to it. Um, there's been years of development on the UI front, uh, on both from Microsoft, from Apple, uh, even on the Linux side. There's been a lot of development on the UI which takes a lot of research and development and focus group testing and things like that to figure out what works. It seems like Amiga just said, hey, look, we've developed this and we're sticking to tradition 
And so we're just going to do this. And it works for the Amiga folks. It does not work for newcomers. It is actually requires uh, reading through a uh, some documentation, some tutorials, and to figuring out how to use the UI. Uh, the UI. Uh, one of the struggle that I had was the package manager. So I ended up downloading a package manager. Didn't come with the OS. In my opinion, it should. Um, there's no reason why it shouldn't, but hey, there it is. Um, and then while using it, it wouldn't download half the packages that I told it to download. A why unknown. Um, I thought that it would download all the dependencies. It would not. It would let me know that there's dependencies that exist. It just did not download them for me. So I had to go and hunt for each dependency on my own. Um, which is not what a package manager in my mind should be doing, but hey, um, what, what are the thing? I mean, uh, I didn't like the folder structure where you had to drill down into a bunch of folders in order to finally get to applications and then throw them up onto your desktop as, uh, as aliases or, or, you know, just, uh, shortcuts. Um, that was something else. Other than that, oh, and I never got the doc to work, but I didn't get that far into the documentation. So I didn't get far in the documentation period because I was, I was really frustrated. Other than that, um, the windows were pretty snappy. Um, there seemed to be quite a bit of applications made for it. Uh, I'm sure running Amiga software through a, I don't even know if that's an emulation layer, Chris. Maybe you have some experience in that, but... Uh, running something like Amiga Forever or something like that. Some some kind of, you can run Amiga software is what I'm trying to say uh, on on that. Um, you just need to work on it a little bit and then, um, and then you can run it. So yeah, uh, overall, not my favorite OS. And I definitely hated the fact that you have to pay uh, after 30 minutes of it. It will artificially slow itself down to a crawl. Your mouse even slows down everything. You, you just got to reboot at that point. Um, it's just so they could force you to pay a hundred dollars for, for an operating system. That's in my mind, missing a lot of things. I don't think it's worth it. Uh, not even to fool around with because you have to restart every 30 minutes. Uh, so it's not even an operating system in my mind that's worth fooling around. I know I'm going to get tons of hate, whatever. This is what it is. <clears throat> Fair enough. I, um, really enjoy playing with it, but, um, I don't think I would buy it either, and I doubt I'll be going back to it. But now that I have a, a FireWire drive, I think I will try installing it on there just to see what I can make it do. Um, I am left curious with running Amiga OS 4, and I am wondering if there's anything out there that we can, besides emulation, of course, if we could potentially run that on our machines. I don't know if it was ever made for PowerPC. For these PowerPC machines, I don't know if they're supported, but... I am left curious. So next up was OpenBSD. And um, since Linux distributions have been dropping support for PowerPC left and right, I decided why not try something different and go with a a BSD distribution. Um, BSD stands for Berkeley System Distribution. And it is regular, traditional Unix. Linux is a Unix-like operating system. OpenBSD is a form of Unix. So I went with uh, OpenBSD, which is a um, more security-oriented security and simple version of Unix that values simplicity and lack of complexity. The pros for this one were it had great hardware support, surprising amount of hardware support. You would think... 
a a less than common operating system would um you know you would have to fight with it i i was going in ready for a fight i i was surprised i had brightness and volume controls working by default at the console they just worked from the the the, the keyboard shortcuts um it was pretty easy to set up. I did have to go into uh, open firmware in order to get it to uh, to boot properly. Um, there is a lot of modern software available for it, so when you're running OpenBSD, you're running the current version of OpenBSD. Not some older version, but the actual current version. And they still support PowerPC. It was pretty fast, pretty snappy for the most part, at least in console mode. Um, and it was very easy to set up. Um, I dare say the whole operating system yes. it has an elegant simplicity in how it does everything, even at the console level that most, most other operating systems are just missing. Yeah, seriously, it was my favorite uh thing that I tried in OpenBSD. I didn't try as much as you did, but setting it up was just remarkably easy. And and I'd never gone through it, didn't even read anything. I just went in to install it. And I could safely say that people that doesn't do not have a lot of knowledge into how to set this thing up or how to set up, a, let's say, operating systems without a UI, they would find this pretty easy. It is so intuitive. It's going to ask you a question and you can just say no or yes or just hit enter and it'll okay fine i'll figure it out for you don't worry about it you know i'll hold your hand even if you don't even know what you're talking about just you know it's it's gonna it's, it's gonna put it right there you know and you can always hit enter and and it'll just try to figure it out for you and i thought that was fantastic you know some of the questions i'm like hmm i'm not really quite sure about this and it just defaults to an answer that i'm like okay with you know like it would just set up everything in such a way that i had openbsd set up very quickly without ever having uh even touched openbsd without any issues and i didn't feel concerned that the uh, that the install went wrong or anything like that that's how intuitive the setup is what I also like is how it standardizes everything. In any Linux operating system, there are five, six places to find configuration files. In OpenBSD, there's one, maybe two, local and system-wide. All system-wide go in one place, all local go in the other. Uh, their documentation is comprehensive, but simple to read and understand. So even doing complex things, um, if you have enough patience, are simple to work through. All you have to do is just go from top to bottom, and you learn a lot in the process. And it was a genuine joy to use. Unfortunately, it has some show-stopping problems. Uh, for me, it would freeze randomly, sometimes within hours, sometimes within days, sometimes within minutes. I couldn't figure out why. Um, updating the base system. Normally on, say, well, by the, base system, by the base system, I mean the kernel and the base operating system files, the, the user land tools. Um, if you were running on, say, x86 or some other uh, mainstream processor architecture, you could use a tool called syspatch, and it would just go and download everything as binaries. 
Well, not so much for PowerPC. Yes, you there is a binary package manager called package add, and you can update binaries installed through that, but that doesn't include your kernel or your base operating system files. To update those on PowerPC, you have to update the ports tree and compile them from source. Um, actually, it's called updating the base tree. That doesn't that doesn't require ports. But anyways, you have to compile your kernel from source and all the all the base level files, which I didn't even attempt to do because just compiling libgcc on OSX Tiger, just that took three days. So I'm uh, not even going to attempt to compile the entire base OpenBSD system. Um, other issues are there are no modern web browsers easily accessible. Arctic Fox might be able to build. I tried compiling it, but the system kept freezing. Uh, so the best I had was NetSurf. I did try Epiphany, which is also called GNOME Web, but it was just far too slow and unusable. And uh, there's no suspend or hibernate. Um, anything else you want to add before I move on from OpenBSD? No, I think that's pretty much it. That's that's a good good analysis on that. Um, then there's Debian Linux. Um, it's broken. That's just it. It's, it's just broken. Um, it used to be my my favorite. Shit crazy. It 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 used to be my my favorite go to for PowerPC Linux. In 2012, I was running it on an I'm on an iMac G4. I loved it. Um, a community they dropped official support uh two years ago, maybe three. Community. A community port is still available, and there's still the great software selection if you can get it to run, but now it is a pain to set up. Um, I couldn't get video to work. I got it to work one time, only when setting up Mint PPC, which is based on Debian. But uh, you have to pass a bunch of different uh, kernel uh, kernel parameters just to get to the console. And Grub is broken, wouldn't install, so you were stuck using Yaboot as the only option, which is old and deprecated. And I might get some flack for this, but I see it as a con. It uses systemd. Um, I mean, systemd works great for most of what it does, but it can still be a pain. I don't like sitting around for one to three minutes waiting for some service to shut down just for the entire machine to shut off. That feels too much like Windows XP era waiting forever to shut down. And that's where modern Linux has gone. You just got to use that uh, that reset button like or <laughs> the power button like in uh, like Morphos. What can go wrong? <laughs> I know you did try um, Mint PowerPC, which was based on Debian, and uh, 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 Phoenix, right? I tried Phoenix, yeah. I did get Mint. And oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I tried Phoenix um, and it, it ran pretty well on my G5, as I mentioned earlier. One thing that uh, that I did notice was that uh, I don't think that the entire hardware was... I mean, it's it's being developed by like one guy. Uh, his name's like uh, Chris something. And um, and he's, he's pretty much putting all this stuff together. But I noticed that my fans were at 100% all the time and everything. So, uh, 
not the best operating system, but it does have a lot uh, of, and it's a Linux-based operating system. It has a lot, uh, a lot of work put into it. So my my hats off to to that guy, Chris. He's he's definitely moving in the right direction with that. Nice. I did try Mint Mint PowerPC, which is based on Debian. Um, you, you basically pass a pre-seed file to the automated installer section for Debian, and that was the only time I got around the video issues. Got into a full desktop, but I found it just had too much installed, too much was running, and I didn't feel like cleaning it up. Um, it, it made the machine just run too slow. So that brings me to the final operating system that I landed on, and it's the one that I'm using most of the time on this thing. In fact, I'm going to be editing this podcast on it because I can't get a new enough version of Audacity to use the macroed setup that I use for editing all of our episodes, and that is Void Linux. Void is kind of unique um, in that it's a rolling release, it's uh, more akin to Arch Linux, but it is very simplified in how it works. No system D. I see that as a pro. Um, is easily my favorite setup for this laptop. Um, most everything works, just not as easily as with OpenBSD. I had to do a lot of tweaking and configuration to get sound working, to get the media shortcuts working, to get um, almost everything except for video working properly. But once I got it, once I got it figured out, it all runs great. Um, their documentation is very good, and it's one of the best functioning PowerPC ports of Linux that I've seen. Grub works. Um, I don't have to use Yaboot. I was able to, once I understood how dual booting is handled on an open firmware-based PowerPC Mac, I was able to successfully dual boot OSX and Void Linux. Um, I'm running it in a graphical environment, uh, running on i3 Window Manager, uh, so not even a full desktop environment, so things stay fast and snappy. The whole system is taking up 84 megabytes of RAM at idle. Um, tons of modern software available. Uh, so long as it, it can be compiled on PowerPC, there's a binary for it in the void package repository. Um, again, updated Audacity, um, but I'm also using modern versions of mPlayer, updated Python. I'm, I'm running the latest Linux kernel for version 5.10. So I'm very pleased with it. Um, the only cons have been it took, uh, like I said, it took a lot of tweaking to get the hardware going. I had to do some, I had to compile an outdated um, program called PowerNowD to get working CPU frequency scaling. This was one thing that was very easy under OpenBSD. Um, all I had to do was just turn on, a, in OpenBSD, I just had to turn on a single service that just said, okay, you're under load, I scale the CPU up, load's gone, I scale it back down. That's it. Well, Linux is supposed to do that with its built-in, with its built-in CPU governors, but they're broken on PowerPC. So this program comes from, I don't know, the 2008 era of PowerPC uh, Linux distributions, but still works on current kernels, but isn't 
in the package repository, so I had to compile it. And thankfully, it did compile and still works on modern kernel. So I did get modern, so I did get working CPU frequency scaling going. Uh, no suspend or hibernate, though I was doing some reading today that suggests it may be possible. And I had to write my own battery monitor uh, because, oh, something else that worked on OpenBSD as well, out of the box. Um, most of the battery monitors on Linux rely on ACPI, the ACPI utility. But the iBook uses a PMU or power management unit based uh, battery setup. And so its information is available under Linux, but it's in a non-standard path in the sys file system, and ACPI just didn't know where to look for it. So I ended up writing a battery monitor for i3 um, that knew where to look and how to query that information. Um, you also wanted to talk about that uh, video player script that I wrote. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that's that was really neat. Actually, I mean I think you'd be the best person to talk to it. But that script is, uh, I mean it it definitely it allows you to watch YouTube very you know it's at 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 full quality. I would say on these G four is it is it full, Chris? Before I go out and say that, can you run a you know a high def file using that uh, that method with the remote play? No, not at all. Um, it's not remotely okay, playing. Okay, so one forty four, two forty, that kind of stuff. 480p is about the best you can get. 480p, okay, okay. But uh, you could potentially you can run it at full quality if you had better hardware, better like faster power PC. I mean, maybe, but then um, at that point, I might as well just you know pull out my main laptop. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying running that, but okay. Um. So yeah. And it, mm -hmm. that script actually doesn't play YouTube uh, remotely like it does everything else. The challenge that I ran into was um, someone sent me a link to a, a TikTok video. And the program that works with this is called YouTube DL. And even though it has YouTube in the name, YouTube DL is a program for downloading videos from the web, a command line utility. Even though it has YouTube in the name, it supports hundreds of sites that it can download from. So someone sent me a TikTok link, and I tried um, downloading the video from YouTube DL and, and then playing it. But it, it only had one quality choice, and that was just high. So I couldn't run, I couldn't play it on this machine. So I got to wondering... What if we offloaded the responsibility of downloading and re-encoding re the video to a lower quality to a remote machine and then had the Macintosh only, the, the G4 only be responsible for playing it? And that is what that script does. It logs into a remote machine through SSH, takes the... URL for TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, CNN, CBS, anything that YouTube DL supports, except for YouTube, because it's easy, it's easy to play YouTube locally. You don't need to do that remotely. So it takes that URL, 
sends it to U2DL on the remote machine through SSH, pipes the output of U2DL to FFmpeg, where it re-encodes it to a lower quality, and then SSH spits out the raw data from its connection to a video player running locally on your PowerPC machine. In, in my case, mPlayer. So that really opens up a lot of possibilities because the PowerPC can't re-encode the video at, in real time. It, it just takes too long. It's just too slow. But if you offload that responsibility to a faster machine that can do it, you can send it hundreds of media sources and play it locally, and it launches fast, runs fast. Um, so now my, my, my workflow for, for watching videos is copy the link, press the keyboard shortcut that I bound the script to. I'm watching my video full screen, looks good, no issues. Yeah, that's really cool, and uh, it's it's really nice this, that you were able to share that with the community. Um, I've also seen it to where people are uh, they're using things like QuickTime. They're running QuickTime uh, to be able to uh, play some of these links. I don't know if it'd be uh, something that you uh, you'd want to look into, but there's also another player called Core Player that apparently is uh, is pretty good for watching high def videos. But I have—I suspect you need a pretty beefy machine to run Core Player. Actually, to watch those. I tried Core Player. Yeah, I was able to run. I was—I was able to play a 720p video on it, pretty smooth. Um, it mm-hmm. looks like it does. It makes some compromises to the quality of the video to pull that off. I saw a lot of mm. artifacts and weird pixelated spots, but it was running. Yeah, I was able to watch a 1080p video with Core Player, but. It was on my G5, uh, so that thing could could run 1080p already. Although, again, in an okay way, not great. But Core Player was able to do it pretty fast. Um, so I I would say if if you're gonna have, you know, if if you're not going to go through the effort of using the script like the one you built out, Chris, which is absolutely the way to go, um, at least install Core Player and and watch it that way. Um, but you know, there's, there's pros and cons there too. So you definitely, um, I, I think that I, I think that the script is the better way to do this. Um, you know, especially since, I mean, you're not really, is it, is it, is it, is it, is it downloading? Did I understand this right? Is it downloading the, the video file to your machine or is it just streaming it? I, I don't understand. The downloading is happening. Pre-process. Re- remotely. Okay. So it. You know how in Linux and Unix how you can pipe one one command to another? Yes. So YouTube DL is running on the remote machine. It's you can tell it instead of downloading it to a file, send it just to standard out where it's just just blasting the bits out, not even storing it mm-hmm. to the hard drive. Then you pipe mm-hmm. that to FFmpeg on the remote machine. FFmpeg can be used to convert anything to anything. Mm-hmm. And then FFmpeg, you say, don't save it to a file, just send it to standard out. Blast the bits out, don't even save it on the hard drive. Then Got it. the output That's what you're doing. The the output of FFmpeg comes back to your local machine through that SSH connection. Mm-hmm. And that so SSH, secured. And that SSH that SSH connection is piped to mPlayer. Mm-hmm. 
Got it. So it is streaming. It is streaming. Yep. Cool. Very nice. Yeah, I I really like the that method that you made. Um. Yeah. I'm, and thank you for sharing. I'm looking for. I'm uh, looking forward to working with you to make it work on OS X. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Um. Because I I know that you were you're working on that in Void. Uh. But I think that the large amount of people in the community are using Tiger and Leopard. And some people even Panther and Jaguar, so I, I think that it would be it would be good for for us to to make it work on on those operating systems, at least on Tiger and Leopard. So it's getting, um, it's getting late. I have a tiny bit left. I'll wrap it up quick. Um, other things I was able to do: Discord and Slack. I'm able to use on the PowerPC through Pigeon. Um, all this other stuff I'm doing under Linux, but through Pigeon, through the, through the libpurple plugins, um, I'm actually on Discord and Slack, and it works great. It's text-only. I don't have emojis or animated GIFs, but I don't need them. Um, web browsers, 104 uh, Fox, best bet. Arctic Fox, second best bet. Uh, NetSurf, very fast, but doesn't render very much. Um, and yeah, that's it for me. Yeah, that's a pretty good list there of, of stuff. I mean, you, <laughs> I'm surprised. You know, every time you would men- mention to me, hey, I got so-and-so working. I'm like, man, that's that's amazing that you got it to work on PowerPC. And and that's the great thing about it. You know, all the, the community, uh, people developing for it just, just for fun. And I've had a lot of fun, and I think you did too, just exploring the possibilities on on hardware that you know it 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 what it is is that it's it's what else can you do with this with this modest hardware we would consider it modest now it wasn't modest back then what can you do what else could you do with it and we just keep finding other uses for it and I'm like huh that's pretty cool you're able to do that wow that's neat and and so that's that's the entirety of PowerPC it's just one one huh after another you know it's 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 just neat like that. And not only that, but, and I think you mentioned it, they just look so great. These machines look fantastic, even for, for now. You know, the aluminum power books, um, the G5, um, actually that same case was used all the way to, I think, Mac 2012, the Mac Pro. Um, still looks great today, in my opinion. Uh, the Apple the Cinema Display looks great. Even the old acrylic ones look pretty neat. Uh, and going back to the to the older machines like the G4 sawtooth that you're talking about, the G3, the blue and white, uh, the, the mirror drive door and quicksilvers, they all look really cool. They, they look like something from the future and not to mention the Apple Cube. I, I know that it may have had thermal problems and people actually um, went around that. Some people installed fans and stuff like that. It was supposed to be a fan-less design. But they figured it out and they've upgraded the processor on that to PowerPC, of course. But it just looks so freaking awesome. It's like modern compared to what we have now. Those computers look really neat. It, it definitely was that forward vision, that forward thinking that Apple had. Um, where I dare say that things are starting to look really similar to each other nowadays. And back then it was just like, whoa, what did they come up with? You know, that thing looks awesome. And now a lot of it is kind of just, oh, this model looks the same as last models and last model before that and last model before that. It just looks so 
much the same. And uh, between that and what what else can you make this little power PC do, and the community, that that in itself makes power PC a joy to use. I mean, you should at least try it. Agreed. If you're not into any kind of retro computing project, I say start here. Yep. Absolutely. You're going to have the most fun, the least amount of hassle, and um and and you'll you'll learn a lot. You'll learn um to appreciate all these retro machines and everything. And then from there, who knows? You know, you might be writing the next version of Snow Leopard that'll work for all the PowerPC machines and uh and you would have contributed. Um that's pretty much it. That's all I have to say about PowerPC. I have a uh, one final thing. While we did talk about um how much how how little has changed and how much we can still do, you also do do get appreciate uh, get an appreciation for how far our hardware has progressed. Especially when you're doing things like compiling code, rendering video, and in my case, editing a podcast. Um, for example, applying a noise reduction filter will take probably 20 to 30 minutes, maybe more, on considering how long we've been recording for, going on two hours now. Um, holy crap, this is our longest podcast. Possibly our longest podcast. Um and on my on my 2015 laptop, it's going to take, I don't know, five minutes, three minutes. Yeah, I wouldn't try doing this on the PowerPC. Not that I can't. It just will take forever. I'm going to. And hopefully not crash. I'm going to do it because I said nice. I would. I tested it. I have the whole process down. I have it automated for the most part. It's going to happen. You know what? It's going to be doing it on the longest podcast, I think, that we've had. Yep. I don't know if we've had any longer. I'd have to check, but this is pretty long. I guess we should wrap cool. it up here then. Yeah, yeah. My PowerPC is uh, here, the fans kicking on, and it's, uh, it's struggling, but hey, you know what? It's kept the connection. Hasn't uh, rebooted or anything. My fan so, hasn't come on at all. It's doing great. Yeah, yeah. I got my fan on. I don't know. But uh, cool. Okay. Well, uh, it was nice talking about the PowerPC with you, Chris. Likewise, it was good talking to you about it at length as well. And it's so neat that we're doing this on the actual hardware itself. And um, it's just, uh, That's just really cool. Yeah, I think this is going to be the uh, last uh, call we make on these things. This was rough. <laughs> but we made it work, and we made it work for almost two hours. Yep. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Good night. Good night, Chris. Good night, everybody. Oh, don't forget to visit us at the Twitters and the Facebooks and the... Oh, yeah. Facebook.com slash ForkBombPodcast. Twitter at ForkBombPodcast, even though we don't check or even post there anymore. You started a YouTube channel. I don't know where that is. I did. Yep. Fork Bomb Podcast. Uh, I did start a YouTube channel. I started posting all our podcast episodes on there. So if you don't, for some reason, are able to find us anywhere else, you can find us on YouTube as well now. Uh, we are on there. Uh, leave a comment, like, subscribe, uh, you know, all that nice stuff that uh, that people do. Um, 
um email yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want to email email us no one ever has but you can the options there uh forkbombpodcast at gmail.com and our website uh forkbomb at podbean.com b-e-a-n as in nancy also yep. um and and you know find us in your podcatcher of choice um we're also on spotify and also, um, you know, I, I would say that we're the most active on Facebook, uh, just because I check it quite often. And so, if you want to write us, uh, send us a message. Uh, I, I would, I would first go to Facebook and do it, and then, um, and then try to reach us from there. Uh, I constantly post on there and everything on the newest episodes and stuff like that. So I'm pretty active uh, on there. Okay. Okay. Glad we got well, that out then, of the way. Have a good night, Chris. You too. And we are just one minute shy of two hours. So talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye.